In our last episode, we were joined by Stacy Siegel, executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation. Stacy has spent a career helping people of all ages and knowledge levels increase their awareness and their appreciation for our built environment through architectural tours, education, and advocacy in Seattle. Today, we're gonna deepen our appreciation of place, focusing now on the business skyline comprised of Seattle's office buildings for a fascinating glimpse at the people and the companies that fill these office towers. Our guest today is Paul Sussman, founder of Office Lease. Paul started his company in 1981, and at the time it was the West Coast's first commercial tenant buyer representative. The companies that he's worked with over the years include Cray, Laird Norton Wealth Management, Blue Shield, Eastside Prep, Russell Investments, the Washington Bar Association, Mithun Partners, Zymo Genetics, the list goes on. He's also served on a lot of different boards, including the University of Washington President's Club, the Seattle Rap, Pacific Science Center, and the Henry Art Gallery. With Paul today, we will explore the ethos, norms, and the distinct flavor of Seattle's business culture. How and why Seattle has focused on technology, innovation, and service to brands that you all know, like Boeing, Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, Nordstrom, and how these companies have evolved into global brands with a reach that expands far beyond their relatively modest Seattle city limits from which they sprung. We're also going to look at what human beings have in common with ants and wasps, specifically our need to be part of a group and how this need remains constant in the face of social change. And it impacts our work environments in ways that may not be obvious today. Paul, hello. Hey, Edward. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, I can tell from your accent that you may be from another place than Seattle. South. Much further south? Further south than Tukwila, yeah, (laughs) South Africa. Okay. And um, how did you arrive on our shores? I traveled around the States for about five years over a period from the early 1970s and settled on the Northwest after spending a week in Seattle and a week in Portland. Had a choice between the two, and I just arrived with a couple of suitcases in Seattle in 1980. And there was no other place to go? We were at the furthest limits of the of the continent? or uh, it's Pretty much it. I've got a lot of family on the East Coast, but uh, decided the weather made no sense there. Okay. And uh, came through the Midwest, and I understood why they said Westward Ho and kept moving. Okay. Um, and uh, there was just something very special about the Pacific Northwest and stayed here ever since. And what was the flavor of the specialness? A lot of our guests have moved from, they're recently arrived from other plates around the world, kind of like yourself, or from the other places, and some come for the weather, the environment. Um, what, mm-hmm. what, was the, what was special to you? What was the... I think it was it was both. I remember being fascinated because in you know in, in, in down in South, in South Africa in the Cape, it's a huge apple growing area, and wheat. And I remember going over to Eastern Washington, and during it was I think the late fall, and there were some frost warnings, and they turned the sprinklers on to freeze all the apple buds. Um, I mean, it was it it was it, it was it was strange. I mean, they, they you know they encased the apple buds with ice to protect them from the frost. Okay, well. which someone from South Africa is completely counterintuitive. Um, there are only three types of apples. There were the grannies, the golden delicious, and the red delicious. There weren't all the variations over there, but they were the best apples I've ever tasted. Okay, and then a trip down to Cannon Beach, uh, which I fell in love with. And just generally, the look and smell and feel of the Pacific Northwest is something very special. Okay, so the Pacific Northwest has gone through many different business cycles and booms and busts. And so I'm just curious, when you arrived in 1981, and again, because a lot of our listeners aren't haven't been here for the length of time that you have, what paint right. a picture of what you encountered when you arrived in Seattle, particularly the urban core? Well, I, you know, the, the tallest building in downtown in 1966, which was a little before I came, was the Seafirst Building. Um, in 1977, they built the Rainier Tower, which was the ice cream, the ice cream building at uh, Fifth and University. Um, and then there was a spate of development in the mid-1980s. In fact, in 1988, there was something like four and a half million square feet of high-rise buildings going on, a lot of buildings that we still look at as first-class buildings. And there certainly wasn't the depth of tenancies. Uh, Microsoft had just been founded on in in uh, actually they weren't in Redmond at that stage, they were in a building just off uh, five twenty on in the Bellevue. east side in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gates Foundation hadn't been thought of. Amazon hadn't been breathed about. I mean, nobody had any idea. And you know the biggest uh, the, you know the biggest companies in town were companies like uh, Bogle and Gates, which was a, a law firm, second largest law firm in Seattle after Perkins Coie, which no longer exists. 
Um, downtown Nordstrom's headquarters was Frederick and Nelson, mm -hmm. which went out of business. It's changed immensely. And, you know, it, it, we, we should remember for people looking at this incredibly busy downtown that the downtown is a very, very fragile organism. And there was a point in the 1980s, in the 19, in, before Nordstrom did the development they did to take over the old Frederick and Nelson headquarters, that there were vacancies on three corners. Mm. I mean, there were boarded up buildings and we were on the verge of the sort of downtown decline that many other major cities have seen. Mm -hmm. um, but we weren't. We were rescued by a very far-sighted uh, mayor, who was so, the mayor? Norm Rice. Okay, he's been a guest here on our podcast. He's been a guest. Well, he, you know, he was the one that put his shoulder behind the idea of doing a parking garage, and along with a friend of mine, Matt Griffin, went ahead with the uh, development of Pacific Place in coordination with the Nordstroms taking over the uh, the old Frederick and Nelson building and restoring it as their flagship store. Mm -hmm. They could have easily gone elsewhere. They could have easily got, moved their headquarters to. Uh, um, to California or elsewhere. Okay. Um, but there was an investment by city leaders in, in assuring uh, that those developments would go ahead and they became the, they, they became the anchor of the renaissance that we've seen in downtown. Well, at the end of our show, a little bit later, we're going to talk about today's city leaders and the relationship to business sure. as well. And sure. as a contrast, I'm just curious about Office Lease too. You founded yeah. this company. Tell us a little bit about why you founded it and what the kind of work that you do. And oh, sure. When I moved here in 1980, I mean, all the typical um, real estate brokerages, quote unquote, full service brokerages were around with it. it was a, a, a Coldwell Banker, Grubbenellis, Cushman and Wakefield. Um, but all of these, did all they of all the, have an ampersand in their name? <laughs> no, they didn't at that stage. That's a whole other story. When we got our, when we when we got our URL, okay. Um, but uh, you know, all of them primarily served the landlord, because the landlord would hire brokers to represent them, and that's what they did on a daily basis. When tenants' leases were expiring every five to ten years, that's not their business. I mean, it's an occurrence that you should not necessarily be au fait with. And they didn't have decent representation. They didn't have someone that did it on a daily basis representing their interests, not the landlords. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the ethos behind founding Office Lease, which was tenants deserve fair representation. So as a consequence, you've seen a lot – you have a perspective on sort of just the business world because you're working with people that are owning companies and running them and trying to get space. Oh, that. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean what other people do is always a lot more interesting than what I do. And when you've got ADD, in any case, you become really curious about what other people are doing, and that's what I've tended to do. Um, so yeah, I'm, it's, it's always been a really great pleasure to be taken on board as a team member for a period of months or sometimes years by companies mm -hmm. okay. and uh, help him figure out how they should be looking at their operations, uh, enabling them to make uh, cogent real estate decisions. So I'm just sort of thinking back to 19, the early 80s when you started Office Lease, and you had mentioned when we spoke before the show about the Economic Development Council and this survey that was done to help understand the kind of what the vision and future might be for yeah. the region business-wise. Sure. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, so, you know, if you're new in town, if you're the new boy in town, you've got to work hard, and you've got to work harder than everybody else. And I was looking at ways of connecting because I didn't know anyone when I moved here, so I spent a lot of time meeting people. And I'd been introduced um, to the Economic Development Council, which was run in those days by a guy called Leland Smith, and it did what it sounds like. Um, and I went to them with an idea. I had a friend who was a professor at Harvard, and um, I knew that for the cost of airfares, you could get a bunch of bright young Harvard MBA ca candidates to come out and do various studies. I had them do two. Um, in this particular case, it was to have them come out, take a look, and make some predictions as to what the future in the Seattle area, what the next industries were. That was a time then of, it sounded like a, almost like desolation downtown. There were lots of office vacancies. And well, we yeah, I wouldn't call it desolation, but, you know, the big, the, the big names there were Boeing. Mm -hmm. If you were dealing with technology, it was Boeing Computer Services. Um, there was Weyerhaeuser. Uh, you know, but it was, those were, it was timber and, timber and aerospace mm -hmm. 
was that, was part of that era. Um, there were these nascent, like I said, one of the founding founding fathers of this was Boeing Computer Services, but there was this nascent software industry. Anyway, these four guys came into town, worked away for a couple of months, and issued this report, which basically said that the future of the Seattle area lay in software and biotechnology, which was fairly prescient. How how was that received by the business leaders? Well, it was it was received wonderfully by the guys at the Economic Development Council that had sponsored it, and they went out of business the next day. Okay. So this report disappeared. It was sort of like, you know, oh, great, you know, I put my money on the wrong horse. Um, so this thing disappeared. And until about 18 months after that, or two years, there's a guy called Chuck Katz, who was a senior attorney at Perkins Coie, who worked with technology. He called me and he said hey, we just discovered you were behind this report. We found this report, and we founded an organization called the Washington State Software Industry Development Board. And it's to focus on exactly what this report says, and that is to say, how do we, how do we consolidate state support behind this nascent industry? And there were like 48 members of the Washington State Software Industry Bo Development Board. Anyway, I became one of the initial board members. Um, it quickly changed its name to something a little more uh, more reasonable, which was the Washington Software Association. Okay. Um, and I would imagine at that time that wasn't a very cool industry because a lot of people probably didn't really know what software was. And no, no, no. People didn't know what software was and, or shareware or anything else. Um, and at our very first annual meeting, everybody, all the board members uh, had to pledge to bring at least half a dozen guests to one of the downstairs, little downstairs ballrooms at the Red Lion in Bellevue, where we had to guarantee 80 people. And our speaker was this really interesting, bespeckled character called uh, Bill Gates, who came to talk to us about what uh, this little company, Microsoft, was doing. Huh. Uh, since then, you know, I'll go to one of the, what's now the Washington Technology Industry Alliance. I'll go to one of their meetings. I won't recognize anybody mm. because they're huge, mm -hmm. and it's a huge industry and a huge business. Do you recall what Bill Gates said at the conference room, or what? Uh, no, other than, <laughs> other than he clearly knew what he was talking about, <laughs> and he was talking. You know, I think at that stage he was talking about personal computers on every desk, and uh, but you know, this guy was obviously brilliant and a lot of energy. At that particular stage, there was a fair amount of rocking and almost talking to himself. Okay. <laughs> but, he, but he was very animated. He, huh. beca he became very animated with the subject. And huh. it was clearly, you know, it was clear to everybody that this guy was operating at a slightly higher plane than most of his I, audience. Okay. So a few yeah. years ago, I went and toured the old, the first um, Microsoft office that you mentioned over off of 520 in Bellevue. Yeah, right. And it was, I, was it Methune Partners? I don't know who the architect was, but it was, mm. you know, it was sort of a fairly pedestrian office building. But it just, yeah. the, one wonders whether that should be designated a historic landmark just because, well, it, you know. Yeah, we've watched it. We've watched it go through several iterations. It's, it's interesting. I don't think it was Methune. Um, but it's uh, it's right next door to the school I was involved with, Eastside Prep, who, okay. which was a school we helped uh, helped find their real estate for, and they're now their buildings are now almost taller than that old building. Uh -huh. uh, it then moved to an office park right across the way from that, uh, also on five twenty, and that was before it started buying land in in Redmond. But okay. yeah, you watch that company really grow. But it should. There should be a plaque or something, something up yeah. on that old and I think there, one of the, there was an architecture firm that has offices, and I think that it had like tip-up balls. They had to build it sort of the second phase very quickly because Microsoft was, you know, growing. Was growing, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, good. So I, so Bill Gates, um, it's funny you should bring that. So I think of, you know, him coming back to, he went to Harvard, kind of dropped out, decided to come back to Seattle Bellevue and start Microsoft. So, you know, one wonders, you know, what how our future might have been different had he chose to stay on the East Coast or move elsewhere and wondering kind of what brought him back. And it sounds like it was his family. But to what degree is Seattle a meritocracy as opposed to East Coast cities where it seems like, you know, I have this theory that people are a little bit more rewarded for their creativity or what their efforts are here versus what family they came from, who they know, where, where they went to college, et cetera. I don't know if you yeah. have any thoughts because you've traveled the world and yeah, seen I, other cities. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's, a, that's a fair observation. Um, you know, the one thing I noticed when we moved here, the families within capitals, you know, whether it happened to be the the Greens or the Nordstroms uh, or the Bellagians, all of the families that were the sort of heritage families in Seattle were very low-key. 
Um, there, there were very few quote unquote fancy cars around, uh, people, yeah, the houses were fairly large, but they were low key. These people did not splash their wealth around. Mm-hmm. Um, they were also very, very community minded. You know, when you, when you look at, uh, Bill, Bill's parents, um, Bill senior and, and, and Mary Gates, who were deeply involved. I was fortunate enough uh, in the 1980s to be involved with the United Way campaign when Mary Gates mm. um, chaired it, mm-hmm. uh, which was the year before Mal Stamper, who was then the president of Boeing. Um, but these people had deep roots in the community. And they clearly, in terms of the Gates, inculcated in their family that giving back to the community and community involvement was non-negotiable. It was just not something that you didn't do. So, <laughs> you know, although, although Bill Gates didn't graduate from Harvard, um, his, his commitment to the community very early on, I mean, taking on... How Uni- was that manifested? Well, taking on, starting United Way campaigns in the young Microsoft very early on. I mean, he, he led by example early on. And although he didn't personally commit himself to being prominent in the in philanthropy until such time as he was ready upon the founding of Gates Foundation, um, w- which speaks for itself now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear that the way in which he had been brought up uh, embedded in him very deeply. So I think a lot of us have it that the F- Gates Foundation, he became fabulously wealthy and successful and then yeah. used that to create the Gates Foundation, which is probably true to some degree. But what you're saying is that sort of embedded in the DNA of Bill Gates fr- through his family was the notion of service? I, I, part- I think so. I yeah. mean, I, I don't, I don't know the man, but you, yeah. you just have to see the way he he looks at the world and and the way in which uh, he has committed himself to the betterment. This is not something. Well, I don't say it's not something that comes upon those who haven't had it inculcated, but you know, clearly this was part, very much part of his ethos. Okay. And he also, you know, I think that's that's another thing. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, if one is for, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't have these opportunities, but with the climate and the sailing and the mountains and the skiing, um, you know, it's a pretty blessed place to grow up, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the water, the fresh water and the salt water mixed. I mean, I, I don't know any, anywhere else in the country that has some of the amenities close at hand that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you've grown up with that, I think a lot of people tend to orientate back to it because they have such good memories. Okay. And the, but it also attracts a lot of people just from elsewhere as well. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, especially if they come here. I mean, all you have to do is come here for a trip in August or September. Um, and nobody talks about November through March at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people have sort of made the decision to move here after experiencing a summer in the Northwest. Right. And then that ethos, that meritocratic ethos, and also the service, um, how, is that something that you see is kind of ubiquitous in our company cultures in Seattle as opposed to other places? No, I don't, I don't think necessarily. I think this is one of the largest United Way organizations in the country. So it's disproportionate for its size. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we're dealing with a generation that does not necessarily sign on the way uh, people used to. Uh, I think things are changing. I think people are deeply uh, are deeply influenced by their social networks. Mm-hmm. Um, giving is still. I mean, we. we I, I know with uh, at 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 Village Reach, we are still trying to figure out. And this is some. This is an organization that does the bulk of its work in Africa. And what is it? What is it? A uh, Village Reach is an organization that was started in nineteen uh, in, in in sorry in two thousand which was a year after Nelson Mandela came out to visit here. He and his wife, Grusha Michelle, were our honorary chairs. Grusha Michelle still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's essentially an organization dedicated to health system strengthening in Africa, uh, logistics and management, information systems, cold chain, uh, bringing, you know, helping, helping people in six different countries bring to their health systems the best practices that are available. Um, you know, we we still are looking at how do you get, how do you get people engaged in uh, in in nonprofits. So I think I still think in this in this town, given all the wealth, we've got a ways to go to get what is a very wealthy community 
fully committed to those sort of activities. Now you're seeing things like, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos finally with his day one initiative is taking on two, uh, two things which are hugely important in this country, early childhood education and homelessness. And he's already committed a couple of billion dollars to this effort. Um, and there's no reason to think it's not just a start. Mm -hmm. And I think he can make a huge impact on those two incredibly important facets of our society. So let's just shift a little bit to office spaces again. Sure. Um, and we were talking earlier about WeWork and just the fact that in some ways it feels like people are less dependent upon an office environment with technology, mobility. Maybe they need an office less, and you challenged that. I was just curious. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, if you think of an online company, uh, look at Amazon, um, which is committed to something like 13 and a half million square feet of downtown, something like 27% of the entire downtown is Amazon. So why would an online company want to have all its people come to the office every day or most days um, if, in fact, technology enables you to do otherwise? That's a great and question. And operate remotely. Yeah. And the reason is social. There's a, you know, there's a social dynamic. We are, as you mentioned earlier, we are herd animals. Um, and, you know, I think termites and wasps is a good, uh, you know, depending on what we do every day, termites and wasps are, are, a, uh, are, are good examples. They're, they're what's known um, as eusocial, eusocial being. And what is eu. a eusocial? Uh, those, are the, those, um, those animals like ants which will in many ways sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Okay. And uh, so, you know, humans, sometimes you look around and you really wonder about that, and sometimes it's asocial, not eusocial. Uh, but people want to be with others. And if you look at our social structure with, uh, if you will, the divorce rate and the number of people who are not married and choosing not to get married, uh, the place they work and those with whom they work become their other family. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's probably they spend more time, as much time at work as they do at home. At, at least, yeah. yeah. And um, and it, it sort of plays into uh, this was something that Howard Schultz recognized with that, with, uh, with Starbucks when he created what he called the third place, which was not work, not home, but the third place for you to hang out. A social environment. A social environment, even if you had to be alone in a social environment and. You just need to go to a Starbucks to see people with their headphones. Right. You know, they could as, as easily, I suppose, be in their kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they want to be with other people. Okay. Um, and so if you look at the way new office, offices are being designed, increasingly, although there's, a swing, there's been a bit of a backlash to the open office, mainly because of a couple of studies about uh, productivity in open offices fairly pretty much drops off. Can you walk us through yeah. a little bit of the sort of the chronology of office philosophy in terms of open, closed cubicles? Yeah, well, it's, it's swayed back and forth over the, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it used to be you'd, you know, at the turn of, at the turn of the last century, you'd see people in desks sort of splayed out, you know, in big open offices with the bosses in the corners. Okay. Um, Ironically, you know, we've we've sort of started veering back to how important natural light is. In fact, in France, I think there's a law that you can only be so many feet away from natural light. Mm. Um, so all of a sudden, people are rediscovering some of the old buildings, like the Dexter Horton building, which was built in the form of an sort of Enron E um, with proximity to opening windows and natural light. And everybody's saying, oh, really, that's a great idea. Mm. Well, you know, it's sort of back to the future. Mm -hmm. um, so what's happened is, you know, Microsoft still gives its people small private offices because if you're in the coding business, there have been studies that show that if you are in the groove then and you're disturbed, it takes time. It's inefficient to try and get back in the groove if you, if, if you are interrupted. Okay. So there are a lot of companies that for certain of their, uh, certain of their functions – are going back to private offices, but a lot of other a, a lot of other offices are open. Um, the key with open office design, it seems, and I'm I'm no expert or an architect, is you've got to have places where people can hide. That is to say, one of the terms in the, in architectural terms is caves and commons. So you have your commons where everybody's out there working together in carrels or in you know not so much cubicles, but they know that if they need pr privacy. 
there's a place they can go. There are a lot of small places you can go away, have a private conversation, or if you have to really focus on something, a place you can get away from that. And psychologically, you know, when we're dealing with clients, we, you know, and 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 their architects, our observation is that if you know that if you know you can get away from the commons, you're far more likely to be able to deal with it because you know you've got a place to duck out. Got it. Okay. And um, so there's still so so the jury is still out about how effective open plan really works, and uh, it really is a function of creative design, of sound suppression and the availability of these uh, caves, if you will, for people who need to get away when they need a private conversation. Great. So there's a lot of brand new offices that are being built just from the ground up, obviously right. Google and uh, Amazon and many more right. in the South Lake Union area. So what other kind of cool things for those that don't work there to go into those places um, that are different or new have you observed in terms of the way the architecture is created inside? Uh, well, I think you know one of the more interesting things today is sort of centers around man's best friend. Uh, and the number of organizations that now have dogs uh, in their organization. Not, uh, not running them. Um, not not, <laughs> not, not running them, but you, you, sometimes, you sometimes wonder. But, uh, you, you know, you look at the Amazon buildings downtown, they're high-rise dog-walking parks, you know, uh -huh. with sort of automated uh, – uh, you know, with, with uh, hydrants and, and places where dogs can relieve themselves. Dog bowls in the lobbies and yeah. – Well, yeah, but yeah. I mean they're sort of upstairs parks and oh. it's uh, – you know, they've got rules for dog behavior and socializing, huh. et cetera. Um, and I suppose, you know, I mean, those organizations that we've gone to with their people with dogs, if they've got their dogs with them, they seem to be more productive and calmer. Uh -huh. So that's one interesting advent. Well, other, it's the, also, can I interrupt? It's also yeah. interesting that, that, that divorce is much more common. Most half of marriages, I think you cited, yeah. end in divorce. And so people yeah. are more solo, but maybe there's something that we need a partner or a cohort or somebody to be with us just to be productive yeah. and calm. Well, they also say dogs are a great way to start a conversation with <laughs> someone if you're trying to meet them. Sure. Um, okay. The other interesting couple of interesting, uh, and these sort of maybe a little geeky, but uh, you know the Amazon buildings downtown, they've got opening windows, which used to be a complete no-no because of the, H the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning systems, but they've got opening windows which makes perfect sense in the Pacific Northwest for, you know, nine months of the year, you've got really comfortable temperatures. Mm. Um, but the other thing they've done is there's a building called the Western Building, which is essentially one huge um, computer rack, huh. which generates a lot of heat. And what they've done is they are now capturing that heat, piping it under the, under the road to the buildings next to the spheres. Okay, and so they're capturing the heat from this, uh, from essentially what is a computer center, and using it in the high rises huh. instead of just uh, wasting it. Instead of wasting it, huh. which was pretty pretty innovative. Cool. The other thing that's going on with most of the new buildings in town is the common areas have become hugely important. The old buildings would have a lobby, and they might have a little coffee shop or something like this. Um, the new generation of buildings and, in fact, the retrofit of a lot of the new ones, the common areas are hugely important. They've sort of become big open-air Starbucks mm. with fireplaces and a place for people to hang out and socialize, and that's where the bulk of their meeting rooms are. Um, one of the first companies to embrace this was the Schnitzer Company, and they had what they called the Great Rooms. Um, and that's a feature you're seeing more and more uh, buildings. And again, that's because of the need for, we work so much and we're living more solo. So having the social element yeah, can make where, us just happier. Exactly. Where you can get out of the, get out of the office, but still do work. I mean, what we're seeing in office design, which is sort of interesting people, you know, 20 years ago, people would say, well, where do we stick the kitchen? Mm. Uh, now. The kitchen is a place where people get work done. And in many, you know, we've seen a number of designs where the first thing you see when you walk in is, and let's not call it the kitchen, but it's sort of the gathering place. Right. And that has become a feature where, where there is productivity and there are these standing bars with uh, plugins for uh, laptops. Etc. So yeah, on the Facebook, yeah. I've been in the Facebook headquarters over in uh, Westlake, and you right. walk, you go through this high security, you get through there, and it's a big, it's like a big cafeteria. Yes. Inside, so it's yeah. fascinating with very comfortable couches. And, mm -hmm. um, well, I just pulled out. This is just some a commercial broker just sent this sends this out, but it's the all the major employers in these downtown, mostly South Lake Union, I guess downtown. Right. And it's just 
it, you know, Apple, DocuSign, Groupon. So it seems to me if companies that are in the technology sector in particular are not here, they will set up satellite offices here regardless. Yeah, engineering offices. And there's something like over there, like 55 engineering offices of various companies that have set up in Seattle because that's where people come. I mean, we've got the greatest density, I think, in, in the country of software engineers. So is that herd, sort of that herd instinct, something that happens within an organization, but there's also the idea that organizations benefit from being closer to other ones, um, and so they're all sort of hurting? Well, I think, I think you know, and again, I, I'm not, not in the recruitment business, but if someone has located here and you don't have to pay for relocation, it's a lot cheaper for you to to entice them over to your shop if they're already living in the area. Okay. And so there is a critical mass, which we now have a critical mass. Our education system isn't keeping up with it. Uh. Um, but there's a critical mass of software engineers in the area. Our and higher education system or our um, uh, more early education? Uh, I think both. Okay. I mean, I you know, I, again, not an expert in these fields, but clearly we are in the lowest quartile of states in terms of graduating the sorts of people that are going to be working in these in these organizations. Huh. Or, you know, the bulk of the people are imports. So it's a huge opportunity for the region to focus on education to it's fill these. It's a huge opportunity, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's an embarrassment that we're not in the business of producing It never occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. So they're poaching, basically, recruiting... Oh, from, yeah. From another. Exactly. Well, people move here. I mean, we do work down in the Bay Area, and you go down there, and, uh, you know, the pay scales over there, you know, maybe 5%, 10% higher than the Seattle area, but houses cost double what they are here. Mm -hmm. And so for, you know, young engineers looking at, uh, you know, whether or not they have a family, if they're looking at living somewhere, buying the, you know, the cost of a home or an apartment is a lot less expensive up here mm -hmm. than it okay. is down there. So the dollar just goes a lot further. Okay. Are we a casual city in terms of like business attire, office attire compared to other places? I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's really remarkable because I lived in Chicago and everyone downtown seemed to be wearing ties. Yeah. That was 20 years ago and maybe it's also just the times have changed? Yeah, I think the times have changed. I mean, you see it, uh, you know, you, you'll go to, I mean, you know, one of the good examples is, you know, you go, if you, if you remember the Rainier Club, it was always jackets and ties. Mm -hmm. Well, they realized if they were to keep their membership up, they had to do away with that. Okay. And they have. For our guests that aren't familiar with the Rainier Club, where is it and what is it? Oh, it's, it's an old brick club, which is directly below the second newest uh, high rise in the downtown. Um, and it's a beautiful old brick building with this, uh, probably I think the best looking high rise in the downtown behind it. But that was sort of the old white man's club to belong with. Mm -hmm. And then they, they saw the light and women started becoming members and then they saw the light and they realized that if it was all jacket and ties, they would be losing out on huge opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, I ask our guests to think and share a place in the Northwest that matters to them. So is there any place that you love more than any other in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, there's a place. There was, so on Whidbey Island, um, about 15 years ago, we bought a 500-square-foot uh, cabin. And it's on a property that was um, homesteaded by a guy called uh, Captain Lovejoy. Um, we've actually got a copy of a document, a homesteading document, a land grant, signed by Ulysses S. Grant. Hmm. Um, and this cabin was built by him at the turn of the last century. It was an old cedar cabin, sort of wormy. Um, all the builders we had look at it said, why don't you just tear it down and start over? But we didn't. We restored it. And uh, so it's on a couple of acres on Penn Cove looking north at uh, Mount Baker okay. in, in the town of Coopville. Nice. And it's a very special place that we retreat to on the weekends. How long does it take to get there? Uh, it depends if you're, um, I mean, these days the traffic is fairly horrific, but if you, if you leave at a downtime and if you, if you leave at seven 30 in the evening or you leave first thing in the morning and you nail the ferry, it's, uh, it's about two hours. Okay. Nice. Um, and the ferry on, on ride a, is nice too, right? Ferry, it's a 20 minute ferry ride, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. I also cycle up there. So, you know, that depending on which way the wind is blowing, that's about a four hour adventure. Okay. So, Paul, in a recent op-ed piece that published in the Seattle Times, you argued that the loss of Amazon in Rainier Square was preventable. Can you um, 
explain how it was preventable and why we should even care about that? Well, I think any city, I know there's been this uh, sort of perennial debate about uh, the the bro culture in downtown Seattle and all the high-priced software engineering jobs. Um, And the city council has chosen to use that as a club to drive home the homelessness issue. There's no question that as the city, as any city, goes through transformation or gentrification, or call what, or call it what you will, that along with gentrification, you lose some you do lose some heritage sites. But cities these days have to evolve or they die. I mean, there's no. I, I think I, I can't think of any cities that are that are not evolving and are not paying some of the prices of that of that development. We have paid a price for that. But to blame the companies that are providing all these jobs on homelessness uh, is is really unfair and very, very unproductive. Um, the city council has failed to engage, some of the potential and the brain power and the creativity of the companies that make up its downtown that make up the downtown occupants mm-hmm. um, I think they have been particularly hard on Amazon mm-hmm. um, and instead of engaging with them very human activity I mean you get together with people and try and if you've got differences work them but don't take a position at the far end of the spectrum and point fingers at a company which occupies 13.5 million square feet and that is 45,000 people who are taxpaying occupants of downtown spending all their money in the downtown. Uh, I think that's at the core of, uh, of what happened when there were the head tax thing came up. Amazon had said, had said to them, we might not occupy this, you know, we, we, you know we've, we're committed to 750,000 square feet in this new building right in the core of downtown. Right. We might not occupy it. I mean, they gave the warnings out there, right? And nobody at the city council really engaged with them, or reached out to them to say, "We collectively have a problem. It's not you. You're not causing the problem. We need to figure out how do we deal with this." They never did that. Mm. They pointed fingers. They were pejorative, and I think what we're seeing is, you know, they're not going far away because now all of a sudden, Bell- Bellevue. Sure. You know, they've bought three and a half acres in Bellevue. You know, they should have 20,000 people there in the next five or you know five or ten years. So you said that the city council, not only did they not engage, but they also went out to New York and told the municipalities that it, would, it was a bad idea? Oh, yeah. Two of our city council went to New York to warn them about what happens when you have a, uh, when you have a high-value employer like Amazon come to town. Mm-hmm. I mean – you know, there are some certain basic principles of economic development. Mm-hmm. And the one thing is you have to look, you, you, you know, you don't kill the golden goose. These are the people who are spending their money and investing in their homes and living in an area. And people do take things. It's not just business. Right. People, words do matter and words do hurt. Mm-hmm. And when you treat people with disdain, you need to be prepared to have them walk. We've got to keep in mind that when you're dealing with any of these high-tech companies, the greatest asset of those companies lies between the ears of, the, of their employees. Okay. It, you know, you're not picking up a hugely expensive plant and moving it. Right. It's not polluting either, typically. Well, no. No. You know, it's, it's not. And it's just, I think they've, they, they, they have not approached this in a particularly adult manner. They've played to a base that are looking for scapegoats as opposed to collectively trying to work it on a cooperative basis. They have not given that a chance. So it seems to me what you're saying is that these people, the brains, basically, all these people moving into these office buildings bring in a lot of sort of problem-solving ability, yes. right? The ability to solve problems and use technology and be efficient. And so um, so is then is what you're saying then if, if that brain power is pushed into some of these community issues, like solving homelessness, to a much greater degree, then the problems could be solvable. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's as simple, but I, I think you know it's very clear. People, I mean, you just look at the dysfunction in our Congress these days, and people are so, people are so polarized, right? 
that they, they, you know, their fight and flight instinct kicks in, their amygdala kicks in, and they do not listen to other people. They take their positions, they're in echo chambers, and they don't listen to people. I'm not saying the homeless issue is not a few, There are a lot of other cities working on them, and it's a hugely difficult problem. Right. And it's expensive. It's expensive to fix it and not to fix it as well. It's, right? it's, well, I, you know, look at the criminal justice system. I mean, right. look at the early education. Oh. We know that to not educate a kid by the time they get into a criminal justice system because they haven't had the support K through five, uh, it's going to cost eight or ten times as much for society to support them. Or even just in the self-interest of these companies, uh, it's harder to attract people to into a city where there's uh, crime and homelessness problems and so forth. Abs- so it seems absolutely. like there's a self-interest as well for the tech firms to well, so- help solve it. But when, but you you know as well as I, if someone comes to you with a smile to say we appreciate your being around, right? We want to we want we want to engage with you to help figure out a really, really difficult problem. It's not, you're not causing it, mm. but we need your help. You're part, you have to be part of the solution, and we're going to do this cooperatively. This is so fascinating, Paul, because it really seems yeah. like this is theater rather than reality, because there are, like in Silicon Valley, there was a, was it the leader of Oracle, what, voted for a head tax, right? Because they want to, because in areas of high, you know, where, where these great jobs yeah. are, homeless, it, it creates a, a lot of, just negative problems for recruitment, right? Yeah. And so so it really does seem like the issue is more about communication and theater rather than reality because the, uh, these companies have shown themselves, Jeff Bezos among yeah. them, they were happy to spend money on solving problems. Well, you, you look, at, look at what they've done with Mary's Place. Nobody asked them to invest their money. Nobody asked them. What is Mary's Place for our listeners? Mary, Mary's Place is a it's it's a homeless shelter for women and children and actually families. I think there's some men there too. Um, but uh, Amazon, in one of their newest buildings, is including. I mean, they're they're taking over, you know, a couple of floors in a new high rise building right downtown, mm. which is going to be a permanent Mary's Place. Mm. So instead of finding yourself as they've done in the past in some disused, dilapidated old motel which someone you know, says you can use this for a couple of years, they now have a permanent home in the middle of the Amazon neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody asked them to do it. Nobody compelled them to do mm-hmm. it. But they did it. And when a, when a company operates like, you know, a company behaves like that, A, they need broad kudos and they need to be encouraged to do more of that and you'll find that people are becoming more engaged. But... You need to engage people. So, are there other cities that have a less dysfunctional kind of relationship between, like, business leaders and and city councils and mayors, where these problems do get, where people do roll up their sleeves? You know, and I, I realize that you're si- Seattleite and you're not omniscient, right? But c- I'm just trying to paint a picture um, because it's so polarized and so difficult right now of what the alternative would be like. And obviously, the example that you gave is is great. Yeah, um, I, I, and I don't know in cities where they've solved the problem. They're wrestling with this down in the Bay Area as well. And it's not the Clearly. homelessness problem. It's a communication between business interests and government that is so fascinating. Yeah. Right, because I mean, it's it, not it, doesn't have to be this way. Well, I don't think it has to. I mean, there are always going to be tensions. There are always going to be tensions between business interests and community interests. Um, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be more convergent. And it's all a function of, you know, the way, the way in which you've been treated will predicate how you behave in the future. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be defensive or do you feel that you have an ear where you can have a, you know, where you can have a civil discussion? And I, you know, I, I go back to, I'm part of an organization that meets at lunch over the weekends and on, on Mondays. And, what is that? And they're a community development roundtable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple of former statesmen, I mean, Slade Gorton and Dan Evans. Um, and, you know, these are two Republican legislators um, that were of a time where you would argue with people. Uh, but there were limits to the extent you did not let it get personal. And you could be friends and break bread and have a beer with someone, mm-hmm. even if you disagreed with them. People were a lot less strident. People were a lot less polarized. And you could actually get stuff done. Mm. I mean, when you look in the 60s and getting done, getting the world's fair done mm-hmm. um, and forward thrust and cleaning up the lake, 
um, cleaning up Lake Washington. Mm. It's a huge cooperative effort, mm -hmm. and we've we've clearly lost some of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we just hopefully we can get away with the stridency, mm -hmm. and with this new city council, have a city council that's not going to be so at odds with the business interests that essentially fill the coffers. So these are businesses are globalized companies now, right? Because of the yeah. way where we are today. So it's also kind of interesting that we've had this theme that I've seen in, in studying local history of parochialism. Right. For example, not accepting a light rail, uh, not going for a light rail system, right? Regional yeah. light rail system. Yeah, and, I went to Atlanta or something back in the And 60s. so that has cost us, you know, just a fortune in just the, having to do it now retroactively. Oh, yeah. No. So, yeah, I wonder to what degree the city council, you know, whether there's an issue of just parochialism, not wanting to be sort of, you know, we'd like to be a backwater. We'd like to be a smaller, you know, play a smaller game maybe. I don't know. And yet it's so, sort of, so we feel swamped um, by all the development and growth and buildings and cranes. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I think the, the and I, it's difficult for me to comment on on that, that, that arena, but I think, you know, not in my backyard has always been an issue when people are either looking at homeless shelters or these uh, uh, apartments with which don't have any parking. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody agonizes over change in their changes in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing in Montlake, there's a thing in the paper this morning about neighbors going around cleaning up the homeless encampments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of them expressing uh, expressing sympathy for these you know people who are drug addicts. Mm -hmm or who are mentally unsound, who do not have any social, sufficient social supports. And we've lost a lot of our social supports, um, which, which drives a lot of these people onto the street. I also think there's a faction that see this place as an easy mark, mm -hmm. and they know it's very tolerant, and they can come and pitch tents just about anywhere they want. Mm -hmm. And the police are not going to move them, and the word gets around. Right. And so there are there is a faction of people who don't intend to work, who end up coming to Seattle because for most of the year, the weather's pretty pleasant. Right. Okay. And they don't get harassed. So another just sort of theme here is, has been global philanthropy, kind right. of work, the Gates Foundation working to solve, but we all we also do have these local problems. So it just yeah. seems like we have like this huge opportunity gap between the brilliance of these com company, the people in them, the philanthropic thrust of all these, you know, the Gates Foundation among them, yeah. and but a, not a congruency in sort of focusing on the local. I mean, we have these global initiatives, but there's also local challenges and well they, they are I, I mean and you only have to look at uh, the environment I mean you only have to look at environmental conditions Bill Gates senior um, in his presentations used to refer to people for example in Kenya or Mongolia as our neighbors and you only have to look at some of the photographs taken from the early early moon missions of this tiny little blue globe to realize that you know, if uh, if if you're in Sweden and you have nailed your environmental problems down to the last two percent, but in Estonia, uh, they've got to deal with forty percent more pollution, and the acid clouds are blowing into your territory. Other people's problems become yours, mm. um, and so on a global basis, you know, although you know, one does say, one, one could argue, why don't we take care of everything on our own doorstep before we worry about the rest of the world? You just have to look at the mass migration that's happening right now at our borders mm -hmm. or the mass migration that's occurring in Europe to realize that we can't, we, we're, we're all interconnected. Mm. And if there is extreme poverty and disease in the country, those people, I mean, what we've done as a species uh, through the millennia is we've migrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the human tide, the human tide will move. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can't, we, ca we can't afford to be insular. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, and it's not what the United States should be about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we asked our guests to bring in something, um, physical from their world to share with us, kind of again, shifting from virtual to real yep. here in the conversation. What did you bring in? I brought something very. Did you put this tablecloth especially for this piece? <laughs> it actually is always here. Okay, so <laughs> this tablecloth is is very um, is very apropos. Um, this is a piece of rock, and you can feel it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's from the Northern Cape. It's from an area called Katu in the Northern Cape in South Africa, and it's a hand tool. Hmm. And they, about uh, four or five years ago, they started excavating settlements in that area that they, of human habitation that they think go back 700,000 years. Huh. Um, 
And when you feel a hand it, tool like it's this, it's amazing actually to feel. Well, just, I mean, it fits you can, exactly you can, it fits hand. it fits in the palm. You can see whether it's been worked. You can see where it's been napped, where this flint has been napped. Yep. And this was obviously a cutting and scraping tool. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, when you look at everything that's going on uh, at the moment, and I'm I'm reading a book about uh, American Reconstruction called Stony the Road, and you look at what we went through and the, 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 the implicit racism um, that was and still is in place, post, even post-Reconstruction, and you realize that this was made by someone who, to whom we're both related mm-hmm. 700 years ago, mm. 700,000 years ago, mm. and they migrated up and dispersed, you know, probably through the Sinai and then out to the rest of the world. Wow. Um, it really puts in perspective that all of the, whether it happens to be anti-Muslim sentiment or anti-Semitic sentiment or anti-black sentiment or anti-white sentiment, it's all really ridiculous because we're all part of the same family. Mm. Um, and this piece of rock, this piece of stone really helps remind one that we all come from the same damn wow. place. Wow, it's, it's beautiful. So, yeah. um, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. A big shout out to Paul Sussman of Office Lease for sharing his really great observations with us today. And if you want to learn more about Paul and Office Lease, you can visit our website at ekreg.com. Click our podcast button. We'll also have a photograph of the hand tool that Paul brought in today if you want to look at it. And we'll have to take a photograph with you holding it because it's amazing how it relates to the human body. And join us next time for a conversation with Paula Johnson. She's a local archaeologist. She's been working for decades and has been involved in some of the region's largest infrastructure projects, so the light rail stations, the 99 tunnel, and more. And in the process, she has discovered amazing artifacts beneath our streets. The topic is actually going to include a lot on immigration and the immigration experience of people coming to the Northwest. And you won't want to miss the next episode. It'll be fascinating. Thank you for listening to EK on the Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and most other places where podcasts can be found. And if you have any questions or requests, send them to me, edwardk at ekrog.com. And if there's a place that matters to you in the Pacific Northwest, uh, tell us about it. We'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time, and we'll hear from others going forward, like Paul, about the places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you.